Welcome to New York Institute of Technology's podcast, The Scope. Produced by the College of Osteopathic Medicine, our episodes focus on the medical school experience and how it helps shape future physicians. Learn about exciting new health and wellness initiatives, cutting-edge medical research and technology, and how to effectively navigate medical school. We are excited to have you join us. Good afternoon, and welcome to a very special Dean's Circle edition of the Scope Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nicole Wadsworth, Dean of NYT College of Osteopathic Medicine. It is my honor, true privilege, to be on location in Baltimore, Maryland, at the future site of the Maryland Osteopathic Medical School, located on the campus of Morgan State University, to interview a very special friend of NYT College of Osteopathic Medicine and a very special person to me. Please welcome esteemed physician, astute visionary, national healthcare policy expert, passionate advocate, and true role model to many, Dr. Barbara Rossley. Today, our conversation will address an array. Where is that person? <laughs> Today, our conversation will address an array of extraordinary topics spanning throughout Dr. Rossley's amazing career. We'll explore her valuable personal insights and experiences, the challenges she's faced along the way, and the vast triumphs she's accomplished through her hard work and perseverance, which have benefited so many people, including myself. We'll also discuss Dr. Rossley's visions regarding medical education and the future of healthcare as it relates to this unprecedented time of technological advancement, innovation, and transformation. Thank you, Dr. Ross Lee, for meeting with me on this special interview. I'm truly grateful to be with you. Thank you, I'm so flattered and honored, thank you. Before we delve into our conversation, I'd like to provide our listeners with a few highlights from Dr. Ross Lee's incredible career. Dr. Ross Lee is a nationally recognized expert and senior executive leader on health healthcare policy issues, and medical education. She has served an advisor on primary care, medical education, minority health, women's health, and rural health care issues on both the federal and state levels. Among many prestigious roles throughout her vast career, Dr. Rossley served as New York Institute of Technology's Vice President for Health Sciences and Medical Affairs from 2001 until 2017. During that time, she also concurrently served as interim dean of the NYIT College of Osteopathic Medicine and School of Health Professions. Motivated by her strong determination to help advance medical care availability in underserved areas, Dr. Ross Lee worked tirelessly to lead the NYIT initiative to open a second osteopathic medical school location in Arkansas. As a result of her tireless efforts, NYITCOM at A-State opened in 2016, with Dr. Rossley named the inaugural dean. During her tenure as dean, she also continued her service at NYT as vice president for health sciences and medical affairs. In 2020, NYITCOM A-State graduated its first class of osteopathic physicians. And also of note, that was the year of the pandemic in which we were unable to celebrate the way we typically do, but those students have done amazing things. And I don't know if you saw Dr. Rossley, one of those graduates we got to go spend some time with this past summer as he started his first job as an attending uh -huh. in the community in which he grew up. 
That's the, what it's all about. That vision that you saw. Okay. It was really incredible. In addition to her extensive leadership roles at NYT, Dr. Rossley is also a founding director of several amazing programs, including the American Osteopathic Association Health Policy Fellowship Program, the Training and Policy Studies Program, and the Institute for National Health Policy and Research. She is a member of the Executive Committee of the National Osteopathic Medical Association, a medical association of minority osteopathic physicians. Among her many extraordinary career achievements, Dr. Rossley is the first African-American woman to serve as dean of a U.S. medical school. That was my alma mater, Ohio University. She's also the first osteopathic physician to participate in the Robert Wood Johnson Health Policy Fellowship. She is a legislative ass assistant to Senator Bill Bradley, a member of the National Institute of Health Committee on Women, Women's Health, a member of the United States HHS National Advisory Committee on Rural Health, and she proudly served as a commissioned officer in the United States Naval Reserve's Medical Corps, achieving rank of captain. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was the first five years. <laughs> With so many phenomenal topics and accomplishments to discuss today, I think a great place for us to start would be at the beginning. Yeah. So, where did your interest in medicine begin, and can and could you tell us a little bit about your path to becoming an osteopathic physician? I didn't start off thinking about medicine. Uh, I love science, and science and math. Uh, but I wanted to be a teacher. You know, I grew up in a community where teachers weren't people, they were teachers, they didn't have lives, and, and they were committed to what they did. And so th those were, that was my role model. So I wanted to be a teacher, and it wasn't until uh, I got to high school, uh, and I was able to attend a magnet school, which, which we call magnet schools now, in the city of Detroit, that concentrated on biology and chemistry and math and some of those special science areas, today's STEM piece. And, and it was at that time that I decided, okay, I want to be a teacher or a doctor, okay? And that's how this started. So when I started uh, undergraduate school, I started off as a pre-med student. I went into pre-med. Um, I was discouraged from medicine at the time. Um, for two reasons. Number one, I was a minority. Number two, I was female. Both reasons were enough to exclude you from consideration uh, for admission to medical school. And based upon that, I wound up with a bachelor's degree in biology and chemistry. And I don't know whether you all know it, there aren't a lot of jobs that are advertised for people with bachelors in, bi in biology or chemistry. And so I was having a little difficult time finding a position, and guess where my first position was? It was in an osteopathic hospital. I had never heard of osteopathic medicine prior to that. And it was at a time when uh, medical technology and certainly laboratory diagnosis was becoming much, much more sophisticated. And so they wanted to hire somebody who had some credentials in science. And so I got hired to work in an osteopathic hospital laboratory. Now, it doesn't take long 
maybe six months till you've learned absolutely everything there is to do in a hospital laboratory. I could do every test. I could type blood. I could do everything that you can do. So when you talk about glass ceilings, <laughs> I understood it. So I also combined that with, ve with venipunctures. And so, uh, and based upon having, knowing all those skills, when I did uh, start medical school, I worked midnights at the, in, at the hospital in the laboratory because I could do everything they needed on an emergency basis at night. So that's, that's how I got started. Okay, so, so I worked in the laboratory for a couple of years and hitting that glass ceiling with no place to go from, that, from there. I decided I'd go back to school and get a master's in education. And the opportunity came along with the National Teacher Corps. So I joined the National Teacher Corps and was able to be involved in K-12 education from using innovative strategies. And I earned my master's degree. And after I graduated, I taught public school, K-12, for, oh, for about a year before the owners of the osteopathic hospital came to me and said, you know, we're opening a new osteopathic medical school in Michigan, and you should apply. Well, I said, what the heck? I'll give it a shot. So <laughs> I went up there, and, uh, and I applied. And I can remember saying to the admissions director at the time, if you let me in, I'll get out. The problem is trying to get in. That's, that's where the barriers are, okay? And so they admitted me to the school. However, at the time, <laughs> I was in a personal note. I was in the process of getting a divorce. I had two babies. I had a, my daughter was a year old, my son was three. And I was talking about quitting my teaching job to go to medical school. And I'm saying, who's gonna feed us, right? So I can remember going to the Board of Education in Detroit and saying, you know, I've been admitted to medical school and I would really like to go, but if you would transfer me from middle school to teaching high school science, I'll turn down medical school and I will, I will stay in teaching. And I even remember her name, I won't say it, but, and she says, no, you're gonna to have to stay where you are. So I got in my car, a little Volkswagen, yellow Volkswagen Beetle, and I drove out to Pontiac, Michigan, which is where the new medical school was. So I was late for school the first day of medical school. But that's how I got into osteopathic medicine. That's the short story. You want the long story? <laughs> <laughs> that's an amazing story. Wow, that, well, thank you for sharing that. that Wow, and, and, now, and now we get to think about the history. So was besides, besides the school coming to you, because clearly they knew your quality having worked with you at the hospital, was there something else that really influenced your path in medicine and, and, and how things took off for you? Uh, I think we all have a health is history of, of some sort, but my my health my family's health is history was really my my grandfather lived to be 106 never had any problems 
Uh, my grandmother was 86. And then, but my mother developed tuberculosis when I was 10 years old. And what I saw with that illness is how disruptive bad poor health can be on the family and on communities. And we saw that in COVID. It's disruptive. And it's something that as physicians or as health professionals, we don't think about. We focus on the disease. And for me, that's where the art of practice is, is to understand that it's not just that disease in front of you, that there's a person that it's, whose whole life is affected by that disease, not just the disease. So, so um, you, you chose, you mentioned this already, you chose to be a physician at a time when the, the profession was predominantly dominated by white, ma white men. As an African-American woman, can you share some of the personal challenges you faced? And you mentioned a few already. <laughs> the very first lecture that I received in medical school was from, and this was a brand new osteopathic school. They had a lot to prove. And so the school was very concerned about their choice of students and how the students would present themselves to the community. And so the very first lecture I had in medical school, to summarize it was, you are what you communicate. So we want you to communicate the best that you can about osteopathic medicine in this new school, okay? And I thought that was such a profound statement, you know, that you, so all I had to be was good, right? <laughs> And then I went into the clinical settings, and we had early clinical contact then. And it became very clear to me that what I communicated was all the stereotypes and assumptions that males have about women or white males about minorities. And so it didn't matter what I did. Fundamentally, they had already made up their mind as to how how competent I was. So it forced me to say, you know, I have to set, set my own standards for excellence. I can't, I can't depend on the environment to do that for me. I have to be good and I have to be my own worst critic to know when I could be better, you know? So. Throughout your career, you've applied your superior <laughs> executive leader abilities towards effectively advocating for the underserved, underrepresented, and those who have experienced discrimination. Please share with us about your passion for helping others and what your advocacy role personally means to you. So I grew up poor, black, and female in a society that did not value those particular characteristics that I brought. And what, and you know, as a child, I was my passion was reading. I was the joke of the family. You know, I never went to bed at night. I used to hide to, to read under the covers. And so my role models were from, from the literature. Okay. And uh, one role model was uh, um, Einstein. Einstein, who says that you can achieve excellence with one perspective. That was a part of his basic 
one of the basic theories in, in, in uh, the theory of relativity. And, um, and so you needed to have a problem viewed from diverse perspectives, okay? And I carried that with me, that your perspective was valuable, even if it wasn't the majority perspective. It had value. My other role model was Joan of Arc, okay? And if you know any of that history, any of that literature, you're, she was the most unlikely leader. And she, and she led without any, uh, any view that she had a perspective. It was all about the, the philosophy, the principles, the idea, you know? Mm -hmm. Again, getting back to everybody has value and all perspectives are important. So those were my role models because I didn't have the usual role models. There were no black physicians. There certainly were no female physicians. There were very, actually, few uh, black or female teachers at the time. So they became my role models, and the, their role models were one that valued differences. Okay. And, and um, so we were talking prior to starting the interview, and, and you mentioned a little bit about this diversity of perspectives. How is, does that continue to influence what you're doing today in, in your career? People look at me and they think that I'm an advocate for women, and I am. And I'm an advocate for minorities, and I am. But fundamentally, I'm an advocate for a human perspective on how we engage one another. And that means in order to do that, you have to value diversity. You know, you have to respect differences because that's how we achieve excellence, okay? And I think, and you have to be willing to, I don't like the word mentor, but you have to be willing to share how that value, how you value people with the people who need it the most, you know? And the, in, in my current role, I, I see this um, engaging students in really valuing what they bring to the table yes. um, in, in a way that perhaps hasn't been done historically. And, and I think that's a strength that, that I, we can continue to use yes. to, to improve and, and that the student voice is important um, to our future success. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so speaking of some experiences dealing with students, could you share a little bit what it was like to be dean at Ohio University? Um, as a physician, and certainly as an academic administrator, one of the lessons you learn is that most of your education comes from the people that you're supposed to be directing and serving. Uh, I've learned the most from patients, and I've learned the most from students, you know? Um, and one lesson that I remember specifically, we, it, change is a difficult thing to accomplish, and you get people who are reacting all over the place. But there were some lessons that I learned through that process of change. And the lesson was taught to me by a student who didn't even know I was in the, in the room 
as it were. She was talking to some faculty from Ohio State University, and she was bragging about what we were doing at Ohio University. She was bragging about how much better we were than any other medical uh, uh, education institution in the state. How, how much better they were prepared because of the new curricular things that we were doing at, at OU at the time, okay? That wasn't you, was it, on the bus? <laughs> no, no, I don't believe that was me. <laughs> but what impacted me the most is how proud she was of the education that she was receiving. And I've never forgotten that. I've learned that you can accomplish almost anything if the people you're engaging or the people you're working with are a part of it and feel proud, proud of it. And so that's been my, my goal, my, my mission in sharing. That's great, that's great. Well, um, so I'll add a little personal uh, piece that uh, you were finishing up at Ohio University and um, I was uh, just starting. So you hired me into my first role at OU, and then you left for NYIT. <laughs> people, um, people have done that to me, too. <laughs> and and uh, you, you um, went to NYT as the Vice President for Health Sciences and, and Medical Affairs. So as you think about uh, your role there at NYIT, what, what do you think your most significant impact was at, on that campus? Let me start with Ohio University. Sure. At Ohio University, we built a model of education that has been replicated by every osteopathic medical school since then. Now, it has changed as it should, and it, it has morphed, but we built a new model of medical education was like none, and so the student had a lot to be proud of. Based upon what we were doing in Ohio, the president of uh, NYIT came to, recruited me to come to New York. And fundamentally, it was because NYIT was in trouble. And the medical school, the College of Osteopathic Medicine at NYIT was in trouble and really on the verge of losing its accreditation. Now, Oh, naive me, I didn't see it quite that way at the time. <laughs> but I saw it as a way to duplicate some of the wonderful things that we had done in, in Ohio. Um, but when I got there, this is what I found. NYIT was ranked at the very bottom of all osteopathic schools. The School was on a financial watch because the medical school was supporting the entire university. There were no support services for students at all. No support student services for students at, at all. There was very little being done in the way, way of research. And the academic program had not been changed in 25 years when I got there. Okay. So I had to take on those challenges. And, you know, they weren't easy because, you know, all of us are very cautious about change. And it wasn't easy, but NYI watched NYIT's 
status and student performance increase. My goal was to empower the student voice. The students need to have a say in what was going on with them. And to collaborate with the institutions around us versus trying to start from scratch when we were so far behind. Uh, Turo being one of those places. And, um, and, and continue the Health Policy Fellowship Program because we needed to have a goal, a high ground purpose, okay? And, can, and at the same time start and uh, to address that, that gap in medical education, which was graduate medical education. We did CME, we did undergraduate, but GME was getting lost in the process. And so the TIPS program uh, uh, um, focused on some of that, but more than that, we really started to build residency training programs as a part of this collaboration with Turo in New York. So, yeah, I had a lot of fun in New York. I'm sure there's still some the same, thank God she, she retired. Because <laughs> <laughs> we did a lot of things. And, and, and uh, one of the other things, mm -hmm. technology. NYIT was out in front of all of the other osteopathic schools when it came to technology. We use technology in ways in which we, today we laugh about it because it's kind of outdated, but we were first. So OU was first with curricular changes, but NYIT was way out in front when it came to the integration of uh, academic technology. Yeah, that, and I would have to add that um, because of that, even though the pandemic had its own challenges, it was almost like, okay, we're just going to be remote. And it wasn't a big deal. And, and yeah. I know how hard our team worked, and they worked tirelessly every day, but they made it so incredibly seamless yes. Yes. For, for our students. Yes. And, and so I, I hope um, you, you hear that your legacy is strong, <laughs> um, and uh, what you built there has certainly carried forward in, in a very meaningful way. And I, you know, I would really like to take credit for all of that. And I always laugh, laugh at students who run around wanting to be leaders, you know. It's really not about leading. Uh, I didn't do any of this. We did all of this. Couldn't have happened without the people that were there. Couldn't have happened without the dedication to excellence that we needed to move to a different place. So no, it, as much as you know, I'll take credit for it, but the reality is the credit is not mine. It's about the people who were there. Uh, the Associate Dean for Student Affairs, uh, Mary Ann Axiger, will tell you, when she got there, I, we, couldn't, we couldn't get a transcript for a student. Mm. Can you believe that? We couldn't get, and I hired her. I said, I don't care what you do, what magic you perform, but get some transcripts <laughs> for these students, you know? Yeah. So NYT has really, really grown, but and not just in correcting things, but taking when you, when you have to change to, to at least get better, why not change to be the best? And NYIT was able to do that in a whole series of ways to get out in front and provide leadership, okay? And, um, and it was all of us together. It really was. Yep. And that team mentality persists because I would say as a whole, everyone wants to do the very best yes. they can for Absolutely. the students.
every day. So, so I'm going to flip a little bit to your experiences with the Health Policy Fellowship Program and the, and the TIPS program and, and just ask for you to, to share some of your experiences. And I'll, I'll do a little plug for the Health Policy Fellowship. I think it's a phenomenal um, opportunity for those um, that participate in it and provides an education and experience that is unique and, and um, challenging and an opportunity to develop in a way that maybe you hadn't known. Um, when I spent that year in D.C. in health policy and, and each step of the way when I left private practice and tech, I thought, you know, health policy was formulated <laughs> in academic settings. But in fact, it's much more complicated than that. But my experience in D.C. was nobody knew what an osteopathic physician was. And not one DO visited the Hill during the period of time that I was there. Okay. And it was such a loss. We, we needed to get on the map, at least, at the very least. And that was actually the, uh, the medical school in Maine. Uh, I interacted with that, that uh, senator often, his office often. They didn't even know they had an osteopathic school in Maine. The staff at the Senate office didn't know that. So my thought when I got, when I left there and got back to Michigan State was, we've got to raise our visibility. We've got to show what it is we're doing. We've got to show what we can contribute to healthcare in this country and what we are contributing to healthcare in this country. And so I tried to come up with a way of, of making that happen. And that became the seed idea for the Health Policy Fellowship Program. I want you to know the profession pushed back real hard on that. Okay. Uh, you know, they, if, you want to, if you want to start another master's degree, we can do that. Well, that's not what it's about. It was experiential education. It was taking us to a way of learning how to vision. It was not a leadership development program, by the way, although ultimately you need the same skills, and so it has the same impact. But the wonderful thing about the health, and in fact, I couldn't, the, um, the external grant environment wouldn't fund us because they wouldn't fund anything that was just for DOs, okay? then my institution wouldn't fund us because they didn't think that we should be doing that, okay? That was part of the impetus, by the way, the, the inability to find funding for this concept of a health policy fellowship program for the profession. Um, that was the impetus of me applying for the deanship at Ohio University. And you know why? Because if I was the dean, I would have a budget. <laughs> and if I had a budget, I could start a fellowship program. And that's how I got started. But at the same time, recognizing the we, my starting a program wasn't going to make a difference. It needed, the program needed to be our program. The program needed to be partners with the rest of the profession. And so we structured it that way in that uh, state associations sponsor, sponsored uh, fellows. Uh, the AOA gave out the certificate for the fellowship program. 
Um, and each and each of the state schools provided uh, meetings where they could call in their state or their local experts to present on an issue. So they got visibility in health policy. So that was a true we, us program. And because of that, everybody owned it. And when you own it, you use it. Mm. And when you own it, you make sure it survives. And that's what the health problem, that was the, the process. What it ultimately became, and I can't even begin to tell you how impressed I am with the, the DOs who, who joined the early classes, because they didn't know what this was going to turn into. But it became the bench for the profession because we didn't have leadership programs at our institutions, but it became the bench for leadership in osteopathic medicine, but leadership with vision, not just with leadership skills, mm -hmm. okay, if that makes sense. It was providing a vision of what we could be, what we could do, what we could contribute for the entire profession. So I'm most proud of the Health Policy Fellowship Program. Having said that, the TIPS program is a diamond in the rough. These are some of the smartest kids. They haven't been tainted by the hierarchy of medicine. They are still asking questions. And this is, this, the TIPS program is really the future of the profession. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So I'm going to turn now a little bit to your newest project, because <laughs> I think you mentioned earlier you failed at retirement. Yes. <laughs> but you're having fun. So Maryland Com will be the first new school associated with a historically black college and university. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about this project and, and how things are going? Well. Things are going well. Uh, it, the, the, the project is going through the stages that are necessary to, to become a school. It's the principle and the philosophy behind the school that in all honesty reminds me of uh, A.T. Steele, okay? In that it, it is a, a project that values or is designed or is vision, visioned to um, create a different way of looking at healthcare, moving it from being, as we've adopted, patient-centered to more human-centered, which is what healthcare should be about, not the system that is, in all honesty, a, um, a medical economic machine, you know? Um, so we're trying to refocus on the people, on the populations, and not use the same tired rhetoric that everybody uses because. Uh, and so when we say diversity, we're really talking about human-centered care that values everybody. And the more perspectives you can bring into that value, the stronger the academic programs will be. The, 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 more, um, the more qualified the graduates will be to treat patients 
who come all come with different perspectives, okay? And not just link it to the classic underrepresented or minority populations, okay? It is, we hope to establish a new model that can be replicated, that moves medicine from being that uh, white male dominant profession in a hierarchy of, um, of uh, medicine that is driven by economics to one that refocuses on where our real power and strength lies, which is in communities, which is with people, which is human. So. That, that sounds incredibly exciting. And I, I I'll add, I'll sort of lend my bias. I, I think the osteopathic philosophy is uniquely positioned to support this approach to patient care and health. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that I say in giving presentations, we, when we all talk about the A.T. Still was the founder of osteopathic medicine. Uh, and then I start po pointing to osteopathic manipulative therapy. Okay. But what A.T. Still was, was a visionary. And the OMT that we use was just a tool to stay focused on the human body. He was a visionary that said, that was, it was all about the human beings, you know? Um, and we forget that. That's what the mind, body, spirit philosophy is all about. It's about a vision of, of being human-centered and, and the needs that, that, that people have for health, you know, so. So, so I, um... As I think about the last question, and I, I think you've given us, you've given me a little insight to how you see the future. Yeah, yeah. Now, now let me push a little bit, and, and certainly having the opportunity to, to go through a little bit of your history and highlight a few things, because honestly, it's just a few. You have, there's quite a repertoire. <laughs> what, what does the future look like? beyond the patient-centered approach? What do, you, what do you see happening as, as we think a little bit further along in time? I think technology has the real potential for changing how we deliver healthcare. But I think we have to be extremely cautious and getting too far out in front with the technology and not, not um, preserving the strengths that we bring to it. I often say that the, what's special about osteopathic medical education is that we teach our students to use their hands and they use their hands to diagnose problems to treat problems, but the most important thing they use their hands for is to communicate caring. When we use only data and not focus on the human being, when we are looking at things virtually, uh, we miss a lot. And we have to be cautious that we don't go so far down that road that we can't get back from it. Artificial intelligence in healthcare is based upon data, data sets. Mm. 
let's back up a little bit and look at where that data comes from. The data that we use to characterize population health and health in this country is based upon billing data. Billing data. And any physician will tell you what they see when their interaction with the patient is not completely characterized in what is in the chart because the chart is set up for the billing. Okay? Mm-hmm. So as we do this, it is, the technology is such an amazing tool. But let's make sure that we are not getting too far out in front in what we want to accomplish. And not forget the human. And not forget the human centered. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I, I can't thank you enough for extending the invitation to be here at Morgan State to spend time with you and learn about some things I didn't know and, and explore some things that I knew a little bit about. <laughs> it's been such an honor and a privilege. I know our listeners are just going to enjoy this um, so much. And I, I can't wait to watch it yeah. <laughs> either. Um, I, it's always a joy for me. I'm in awe of all you've accomplished in your res- relentless pursuit for justice, equity, and availability of osteopathic health care for everybody. Your work has direct, directly benefited those in need, for sure. And you're a true champion for minorities, women, the underserved, the marginalized, and the discriminated. Thank you for all you've done all you will do, because I know you're not done. Your perseverance has made our world a better place. I can't wait to see the first graduates from Morgan State. Thank you. (laughs) That would be great. Okay. Thank you very much. I'm truly, truly honored. Yeah.